0: Welcome to Man Up, the podcast by men, about men, and for men who want to be better fathers, husbands, leaders, and followers of Jesus. Today's topic Radical Repentance. Are you ready? Man Up. Yes, sir. Welcome, welcome, my friends. I'm your host, Jared Bowman, and this is Man Up, your podcast with all of the information and encouragement that you need to be a better father, husband, leader, and follower of Jesus. We are a band of brothers. We are soldiers in arms. We are comrades who fight side-by-side, shoulder-to-shoulder, hand-over-hand, and mile-after-mile until each has helped the others attain the high calling of Jesus. Today, we are joined again by our friend, B.J. Seip. If you were with us last Friday, you know that B.J. gave a great interview on radical repentance. He talked about the struggles that men face, particularly struggles with pornography, and sexual immorality we talked about not bringing those things into our marriage and how to heal from the devastation that they cause today we're talking about that same kind of radical repentance and we're bringing it not only into our marriages but we're talking about how to engage with our children as their fathers in that way it's a great episode you're not going to want to miss it and we get the popular rapid fire section Now, from me to you, I want to say thank you so much. Our audience is growing. More and more men are finding this. That means you're liking and sharing and subscribing. Thank you so much for that. Keep it up. More men need to hear these things, and we need to have these discussions every day of our lives. So, from me to you, thank you. Before we get to the interview, though, I have one question. Are you ready? man up. If you've listened to this podcast, Jay, you know that I talk about the differences between sowing and reaping, the work that we do in the world, and warfare, which is the work that we do in ourselves. When you look at the analogy, that seems pretty consistent with the way that scripture uses those two things, and yet we tend to reverse them. We tend to think about, you know, our our warfare is against the world, and it's, it's really not. It's against ourselves. So Paul talks about repentance and conversion, like death and resurrection in Romans 6. What does the phrase radical repentance mean to you, and how does it apply to spiritual warfare in our daily lives?
1: Radical repentance. The first thing that comes into my mind is actually not Scripture, but a summary from Scripture from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Mm -hmm. Bonhoeffer was a a pastor, a theologian, a spy— Uh, he was a lot of things. He was like Indiana Jones meets James Bond meets Father Brown, like, all together. Hey, there you go. And what he wrote in his work, The Cost of Discipleship, is the following. Mm -hmm. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's exactly the invitation that we're given from Jesus. And and when you look at... Everything that Jesus has to say about discipleship, there's death involved. What what Paul says in Romans 6 is just one location that we can look to. You see what Jesus says about anyone who wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus mm-hmm. associates discipleship with death, death to self, right. death to my desires, my you know pleasures, my lust. And rather, in place of that, allowing Jesus to live in that place, through me. And that's what Paul talks about in Galatians 2.20. You cited that earlier. You know, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith through the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me that is a powerful, powerful illustration of what repentance looks like and what we are called to do. As repentance is is both a process and a point, um, mm-hmm. I think what's really important is to understand is, you know, what Jesus is calling for us to do is radical. It's going to involve a radical change. In our life, I'm gonna do the things that I that I need to do to renew my mind in order to bring about change, you know, in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, worldly sorrow doesn't lead to change. Worldly sorrow is just right. sorry, I got caught, I'm sorry for the consequences, but there's not actually a change of mind, and so there's not a change of action. I mean, it's why it's why in Matthew 3 John refused to baptize the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And, you know, other passages might say, you know, that you might be, you know, worthy of repentance. And the idea behind that word there is equal scales. You know, just like with unjust scales, you're cheating someone. You know, there needs to be a correlation between, and, and, and and a consistency between what you're giving up and what you're taking. That's what John's saying, is that repentance needs to be weighed. And there is something that takes place in the mind first but it will naturally respond if you do repentance right. And that's what Jesus is calling us to, radical repentance. It's not that, you know, now I'm saved, but my life doesn't look much different. Jesus is calling for us to change everything.
0: Right. I think that's why the life and death metaphor is so poignant and so applicable there, because what we're gaining is new life. Therefore, the old life has to die.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I think and that's what that's what Jesus is calling for us to do. Yeah. And that
0: is the spiritual warfare. The Bible doesn't speak about changes in terms of of you know making a better resolution. It speaks about it in terms of a complete reinvention yeah. of the person that's doing the repenting. And until we really get that then we don't understand the metaphor of the death, burial, and resurrection. Like you talked about that, you know, Jesus told them, take up your cross. That doesn't mean do hard things. To take up the cross is a death sentence, and he's not telling them you're going to die because you became a Christian. He's saying you have to be prepared to put the man of sin to death because that's what's going to be expected of you. And trading the value of what I'm given versus what I have, well, I'm still going to come up short. If it, if I give everything that I have, I'm still going to come up short. And I have to understand that that means I have to give all that I have, which is, again, why that death and burial and being raised as a new man is such a fitting metaphor. It's not just that it applies directly to what Christ did for us, but it's a fitting metaphor of repentance yeah. and and why baptism is, is the point of forgiveness of sins, because it is a, a declaration of asking God to renew the conscience, according to 1 Peter 3 and 21. Yeah. And it is God taking the certificate of debt and nailing it to the cross so that I can be crucified with Jesus. He can bear the crucifixion for me, and then I can be raised, but I'm not raised a better version of me is raised that is trying to be like Christ. Yes. And am I going to be perfect in that? Absolutely not. But that's why, as you said, and I like to talk about it this way, you said a point in the process. I talk about repentance being a daily walk. And too often I think we celebrate baptism as, you know, we, we got our kids into heaven. We, woo-hoo, they, they, they crossed this line. And I, and I understand the euphoria over that. We're, we're yeah. happy when they make that decision. But it's really the beginning and not the end. Yeah, that they have they haven't. What at baptism they've crossed the starting line. That's all,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and the walk that comes after that is the defining relationship between them and God. And it's going to be that's what their eternity is going to be based on.
1: Yeah, I, I've I've talked about this so many different times. You know, baptism is not what saves us. It's Christ that saves us. Baptism is the moment of salvation. And it's and it's this idea of the death and the burial and the resurrection, all that, and faith and and all, all that takes place at the same moment and God does the work. And Paul puts all that together in Colossians two that you referenced. Mm-hmm. And and we've <laughs> the five steps of salvation. I understand the point, but what it ends is the goal is baptism. And that's yeah. not the goal. The goal is Jesus. The goal is Christ-likeness, discipleship. That's the ministry that Jesus has given us and what you were talking about. Baptism is the beginning step. And that's why I say repentance is both a point and a process. You know, repentance happens at that first point where you make a declaration, a decision, I'm going to no longer live for myself. I'm going to start trying to live for Jesus. And you make a decision Mm -hmm. that day. It starts somewhere. And then you die to self when you're forgiven of sin. And yet now is the hard part. Now is the discipleship. Now is the growth. Now is the confession, you know, is the rest of it. And I want to key in on that resurrection aspect, because you talk about, you know, why, why is this a fitting metaphor, you know, death and resurrection? Well, think about the way that Paul talks about our own resurrection. We're going to be raised in that which was sown in corruption is raised incorruptible. That which was sown in dishonor is raised in honor. And that which is sown mortal is sown in immortality. This is the language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15. Mm-hmm. It, it, there's going to be a, 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 a way in which we are transformed in the twinkling of an eye, as we're told, into our resurrection bodies. Now mm-hmm. take that, that idea and that language and, and correspond it with the idea of death and resurrection spiritually in our lives. Right, we are that language in Romans six is that we're called to walk in newness of life. He's making yeah, all things life. new, and there there is nothing that was former that should continue on, you know. And and, mm-hmm. and and that's this this idea is that our our spiritual state, this resurrected state spiritually that we live in now, is incorruptible. We are made righteous because we are covered by his blood. But it also means that there is a drastic change in the way in which we live, in the way in which we think there has to be. Mm -hmm. And this whole notion and idea that some people have gotten onto that Jesus wants to save me, but then just kind of come as you are and stay as you are, that's that's not the gospel. Jesus Jesus
0: absolutely wants to save you, but he wants to save you from yourself.
1: That's exactly it. That's exactly it, and and this idea of re- resurrection, you cannot come away with a different understanding if you understand resurrection properly than that Jesus wants to change you. Yeah, and
0: that's, that's why when you look at James 4, and he says, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy be turned to gloom, that that's the change. That's the transformation. It's not just saying be sad. It's saying what was joy and what was laughter now become the things of which you are ashamed. Yeah. Because you have turned, you've turned and you want to draw near to God. And and that's what baptism really is. I mean, even passages like First Peter 3.21. And you mentioned that baptism is the point of salvation, but it's not really the thing that saves us. And that might initially seem to conflict with the wording of 1 Peter 3. But if you stop and think about what Peter is saying there about, you know, it's not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. You know, yes. we often treat baptism like a ceremony, that it's, the, it, it's not what's happening in the outer man, it's the appeal to God of a good conscience, that a conscience that has dedicated itself to repenting, it's appealing to God to take away those sins, surrendering to God in the way that he asked us to surrender in the form of a death, burial, and resurrection. And and allowing Him to reshape the person that we are. And that's exactly what you see in in Titus chapter 3, where it talks about the washing of regeneration. And you back up to Titus 2, and it says, the grace of God has appeared to all men, and it teaches us to deny ungodliness and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. When we emphasize baptism, or on the other side, when we When denominations emphasize grace apart from obedience, is we don't realize that obedience is an extension of God's grace. Yeah, and baptism is the grace of God in action. It's not, and that's yeah. I read an article about. I think it was tens of thousands of Catholics were going to have to be rebaptized because one guy said the wrong word when he was baptizing. Never mind the fact that he was probably baptizing infants, which isn't baptism at all. But the idea that somehow saying the wrong word could invalidate baptism, it's not ceremony. Mm. It is the surrender in the way that God asks for surrender. And when you look at Matthew 28, and Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, he's not saying that you have to say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before you baptize somebody. He's saying this is what... God has led you to, this is what his authority looks like, that he, this is what he accepts as surrender, and you can have full trust in this. This is what he's asking you for.
1: I think I read that same article. It was that priest, right? Who, yeah. Yeah. I, I think I he was down that. in New Mexico, with read memory that, served, I read Maybe I same article. Yeah. You know, to illustrate that we've missed the mark, you know, a lot of Christians that I know that run in the circles that we do pride themselves and being right on baptism or so they think. Right. And I actually have challenged people and said, you have the wrong view on baptism. Well, how dare you even suggest such a thing? And I'll give you an illustration. I'll give you two illustrations as to why I started really talking about this. I've taught several classes, and every time I've done so, I've asked this question. Do you agree with this statement? You are saved by grace through faith. Raise your hand if you agree with that statement, because that's word-for-word scripture. That's what Paul teaches in, in Ephesians 2, verse 8. And yet only half of the group, every time I've asked this question, will raise their hand. And then you ask, why didn't mm-hmm. you raise your hand? And what's the objection? Well, you didn't say anything about baptism. Yeah, yeah. I guess Paul was wrong then in Ephesians 2. We need to correct Paul. Well, Paul, you didn't you need to make sure to insert the word baptism in there. <laughs> You're missing the whole process. I'm my part is the faith. And of course that happens, you know, baptism is part of that. But in this right. moment, I am putting my faith and my trust in Jesus and His work and that He will save me by His grace. But Jesus is the one who saves us. I won't mention where or when, but I was uh, at one point in in recent years, I was talking to a a fellow who wanted to study with a young lady and asked me to help them study. And I said, sure, I'd be happy to help you study. What what do you guys need to study? What do you want to study? And he said, "I, I don't know. And I said, well, go find out where she's at kind of like what her background is, and then let's sit down and, and we'll, we'll study. We'll go talk to her. And so he did, and he came back on the next time we all got together. And he said, okay, I think we we're ready for a study. I said, great, what do you want to study? He said, well, we need to study baptism. I said, okay. I said, I didn't realize that's where she was at. I was like, well, what, she, what does she know about, you know, God or the Bible or Christ? And he's like, well, I don't know. I said, well, wait a second why do we need to study baptism then he says well because you have to be baptized to be saved i said well, no you you need to know jesus to be saved like who's right. who is she being baptized into if she doesn't know who jesus is what's the point that that means nothing the jews treated circumcision well i'm circumcised mm-hmm. so i'm good i know god well no you weren't circumcised in the heart you know, we treated baptism in that same way. Well, I'm baptized, so I'm good. Well, okay, but do you know who Jesus is? Do you know Jesus? Right. Have you actually given yourself up in faith towards him? Because if not, your baptism means nothing.
0: Well, and that's one of the things that you talked about the the issues with the you know five point plan of salvation. And I understand how that how we came to talk about it in that language, but we also need to realize we're not the only the only faith with a five point plan. And that five-point plans very quickly become creeds mm-hmm. if you're not careful with them. And I had, when I was preaching in my younger years, and probably wasn't as good as explaining this as I should have been, I was probably more brash than I needed to be, but I was sort of dismantling this thought of a five-point plan of salvation. Yes, there are five things the Bible says that every person who comes to Christ does, but they're not they're not this sequential, of uh, uh, when I get to the end of it, then I'm okay. Yeah that we developed that as an answer to religious error.
1: To other five-point plans, Yeah, To other five-point
0: plans. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And even plans that have way more than five. <laughs> <laughs> but when we do that and we te- – but we took that because it was an easy mnemonic device and we started teaching it to our children and we became so busy answering religious error that we forgot to teach the truth. Mm-hmm. Those five steps are a response to the grace of God. They are the faithful response to the grace of God. Mm. Where is the grace of God in those five steps? Yeah. Where is faith in those five steps? And you where's say, Jesus? well, you know, these are, the, yeah, where's Jesus in these five steps? And you say, well, well, the, these five steps are just what is required. Okay. Then it's not really steps. Mm-hmm. It, it are, they are responses to grace. When I, when I hear the message of Jesus and it makes me—and it provokes within me a belief and a desire to respond to that message, then the Bible very graciously shows me how I respond to that message. That I do it by trying to change my life and become like Christ and recognizing that that's not sufficient, that I have to surrender to Him, give my heart to Him, and allow Him to wash me clean— we need to go back and figure out what faith is. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But well, that's, that's a wrap. That's a wrap, folks. That's I can't say anything more than what Jared just said there. You know I, I told you we we are passionate about some of the same I, things. I love it, man. <laughs> hey, you know what? What you just said, people have been trying to preach this understanding and getting back to this understanding of grace and faith for years. And you know, back to who I referenced earlier, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in that same book, The Cost of Discipleship, he talks about oh, cheap, the cheap grace, grace versus costly grace. Oh, and yes. he just rips to shreds the idea that faith means do nothing and this sola fide, you know, idea that, you know, I'm I'm called to do nothing and he says, no, that's that's cheap grace. Costly grace uh-huh. is that you are called to give up everything. In response to grace. And that's exactly what we read about in Scripture. And people want to say, well, now you're doing salvation by works. No, no, I'm not doing this in order to be saved. I'm doing this as a response to salvation. And to not respond in such a way demonstrates that I have not understood His grace or received His grace, and there's evidence that I'm not saved. You know, there's a big difference.
0: And such a strange, a strange, realization for him to come to given the religious traditions that he was upholding. Yeah. That I mean I couldn't articulate that better and that's exactly what scripture says is that grace is free but it's not cheap. That's it. It it costs me everything to lay a hold of that grace. But I don't do that so I can earn my salvation. I do that because the offer of salvation has been put in front of me and that's how I respond to it. Yeah. is by putting to death the old man and allowing the new man to live in his place. And I do that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which the Scripture connects to baptism and the work of God taking away sin.
1: David's words at the threshing floor come to mind, I will not offer a sacrifice to God that costs me nothing. There is something that Paul really delves into in Scripture that I think we uh, horridly uh, are negligent about in many church circles today. And I'll start with another story to illustrate it. Uh, At one point, I had a good friend of mine who obeyed the gospel, and she was getting married to one of my best friends, and she obeyed the gospel. And then a couple of months went by, and she approached me, and she said, I don't have a mentor. She said, why don't you guys have like mentorship groups, you know, someone to help me to learn and and grow and understand and study? And I'm like, well, we— should like that should be what we're supposed to be doing when you when you open up scripture you look at what paul kind of right there in titus yeah i was just looking there in titus you know what he says in titus 2 older men are to be temperate and dignified and sensible sound in faith and love and perseverance and older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior and not malicious gossips or enslaved much wine teaching what is good so that they may instruct the young women to be sensible and to love their husbands and love their children. And you see this also in 2nd Timothy when 2nd Timothy chapter 2 when Paul writes and says, "You therefore my child be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also." You see four generations mm-hmm. in one statement there. And what we need is to bridge this generational gap. We need biblical mentorship where marriage is modeled for the younger men inside the home where they're spending time with m- couples who are married and seeing how marriage works and, sh- and and talking about it and working through it. When it comes to any any of these issues, anything that we're struggling with, there have been a group of people who have fought this battle for years that are in the thick of it and have right. dealt with things that we're dealing with for the first time and as a younger generation and trying to navigate, and they're called to teach. They're called to bring up. They're called to mentor. And in in our groups, again, you know, go back to that isolation idea. We We create the problems ourselves because we separate everything. We want youth devotionals and youth groups and youth classes and youth retreats and, you know, There are some Mm -hmm. spheres within Christian churches that they don't even have worship together. Child worship and teen worship is separate entirely from adult worship. Why have we done the exact opposite? The church is not like a family. The church is a family. And families spend time together. Families teach their children and, and model for their children, just like my dad did for me all growing up. This is what we ought to be doing in the church. There needs to be mentorship taking place where we're bridging the gap. And then the mm-hmm. second issue is the Rehoboam's. You've got the, the younger generation that you know has wise counsel available for them and tries to give them wise counsel, and they buck it, and instead listen to their peers who say, You go tell the people that you're, you know, little fingers thicker than your father's thigh. You have a younger generation that's not willing to accept instruction. We want to do it by ourselves. We've got to bridge this generational gap. We've got to have biblical mentorship where we can work through winning these battles together. And that's going back to that idea. We were not designed to do it alone.
0: Fortunately for me, that was something that my dad was really good at is that he was he found the direction that each of his kids needed to go and he sort of tried to teach them skills along those directions and it was very evident to my dad at a very young age i was not going to be a mechanic (laughs) Uh, i i've used this analogy before but i can you know working on a car if you let jared turn a bolt he's not only going to drop the bolt he's going to drop the socket the socket wrench the screwdriver and the hammer that you didn't even know he had (laughs) Into the bay of the engine, and you're going to spend the next two hours trying to fish them out. And so I became the resident tool hander, which was that, that is a fancy way of saying, okay, we're going to find a way for him to help. So we're going to describe tools to him. We might let him turn something that's accessible on the outside just so he feels, you know, okay about this process. Mm-hmm. But even then, they would describe the tool. I would go get four examples of what I thought they were describing, and it would be the fifth or sixth one before I would get it right. And And, but that idea of mentoring, my dad knew that whatever I did was going to be very cerebral. And that's the way that he tried to mentor me. And parents, you need to know your kids well enough. I think we think about parenting in terms of discipline more than we think about guidance and mentoring. Mm -hmm. And discipline certainly plays a role in that. But, If you're not helping your child navigate the world, you're just waiting for the next mess up to correct, then you're, number one, you're not really getting what it means to be a parent. And at the same time, you're navigating from storm to storm and you're not seeing any of the joy in it at all. I agree. And so that idea of mentoring is so important. There's a a guy that worships with us and I don't mind sharing his name. His name is is Paul Goodwin. You might know Paul.
1: Yeah, I know the Goodwins.
0: Yeah, well, the minute that somebody comes to the congregation, whether they're a visitor or, or particularly if it's somebody that's studying the Bible and is a potential convert, and even afterwards, Paul is going to be in... An influence on them, he's going to talk to them. He's going to he's going to engage with them. He is going to, and not just to try to teach and convince. Paul wants to know them, yeah, and that. he wants to know what they're struggling with. He wants to know well, why are you here and why are you thinking about this. If, if he can, he is going to become, at least one of the mentors for those people if they'll have him because he is so passionate about people coming to Jesus and and is so passionate about making other disciples. I appreciate that because it is that idea of mentorship and becoming not just a guide but an advocate for somebody to understand how they appreciate the grace of God. And, And our lives hopefully are full of those kinds of people, and hopefully we are being that kind of person for our children. Yeah. And th- those types of relationships, and I was thinking about that, and it, it sort of leads me to the next thought. You've got an absolutely beautiful family. I've seen the pictures, so I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad that, I'm glad I, I that our kids would...
1: came out looking like my wife. I'll just say that.
0: <laughs> well, I would be happy if our kids came out looking like Lauren, but we had to. But we had to adopt, and so uh, that sure took a lot of pressure off of me. I'll just say that. <laughs> <down. laughs> I'm like, who?
1: It's not my fault.
0: <laughs> yeah. Going gray early, patchy beard and, and milky white. That's just not a good combination for anybody. <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh, man. I'm
0: 45 and I've had about this color hair since I was 32. Hey, a little, hey, little more pepper in it we, than it has we now. We
1: regard but. no one according to the flesh. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's right. Except for my buddy Brian Haynes, when he's on here, I love to tease him about being bald, but I have to be careful because he says he has the power to summon bears. Oh, here's
1: the deal. (laughs) Here's the deal. If someone's giving them a hard time, you know, for being bald, all he needs to do is go out and buy a cheap wig, because it's just a small price to (laughs) pay.
0: Dad joke.
1: That was a dad joke. Dad jokes enter the scene.
0: Dude, (laughs) the dad joke game is strong with BJ.
1: Oh we, don't get me started. We'll be here for longer.
0: <laughs> but the Bible talks about our wives being helpers suitable for our opposite. Mm. How has Kylie helped you in your struggles? And what would you say to men who are hiding struggles from their
1: wives? Oh, man. Okay. Let me just say I'm married up, and I do not deserve to be married to the woman that I'm married to. I have never met a more. Yeah, I would give you an
0: amen, but that might sound weird. But no. I feel the same way about my You
1: understand. You feel, you feel what I'm feeling. We have married up. And to be married to someone so selfless and godly and Christ-like and serving, I mean, I'm so undeserving of of being partnered with who I am. And that's what I'll say. My wife tells me all the time that we're heaven partners. And that while there will be things that I do that hurt her and that are going to impact us that we need to work through, she understands that her first responsibility is to help get me to heaven. And she doesn't want to abandon ship. And I feel the same way towards her. And and that is a mentality that I would encourage all married individuals to adopt. Your job is to help the other person to make it. And that means putting your feelings and yourself aside sometimes in order to help your spouse with something that they need help with. My wife has helped me more than anybody else. I mean, she has helped me with, you know, my addiction issues and uh, While well, it has impacted our marriage in negative ways at times, and here's the deal, our marriage would be awful if it weren't for being vulnerable with my wife and talking with her about that and, and, and setting her up as as a part of my accountability group. And mm-hmm. Just because of my history, I have I have device, current control devices, uh, covenant eyes on all of my devices, and she gets a report, a history of every single thing I've ever looked at, period every single week. <laughs> and you know some people, well, where's your privacy? Uh, here's the deal. If I'm doing things righteously and right, I don't need privacy. There's no privacy in marriage. What's mine is hers, what's hers is mine. Um right. and she she has helped me to learn to be vulnerable with her and she's shown me grace and she's taught me how to do that with others. And she's vulnerable with me and we are a team and we have not had a perfect marriage. We've not had things go perfectly in our marriage. I mean, we've been through some issues. We've been through things, not just our own personal struggles. I mean, we've had two miscarriages along the way in our marriage. And, you know, my wife's character has been attacked by Christians while I've worked in ministry in different places. I've been told point blank that your wife is just not good enough to be a preacher's wife, so much so that they they encouraged me to stop preaching and find mm-hmm. secular work. We've, we've dealt with awful, terrible things in our marriage. And it all goes back to we're heaven partners, and we've helped each other through each of those things along the way. And that's where it starts, and that's where it ends, and that's what I would really encourage people to, to remember and think about. This is you've been given to each other for a purpose, not just to enjoy life together, not just to find fulfillment and temporary things, but to build each other up for eternal things. Right.
0: And that that's one of the things that we don't often think about as preachers, is the struggle that our work in the kingdom places upon our family. Teaching being the grace for others is definitely something that Lauren has taught me. I haven't always been the most gracious person. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm still not the most gracious person. I have to really bite down on initial reactions. But knowing that I have somebody who is in my corner to help me with that and I can say, help me respond to this person. Right. And I know when I'm in emotionally deep water, help me respond to this person in a way that Says, "I love you, but you're wrong." Mm-hmm. Without an overemphasis on the wrong.
1: Yeah, I've, and this is something that my wife and I have talked about. Like preachers live in glass houses, their wives live in glass houses, and it's easy mm-hmm. to throw stones at people who live in glass houses. And so we've always reminded ourselves, like, you know, at first we thought, well, if we if we live like Jesus and look like Jesus. There won't be reason to throw stones, but <laughs> wait a second. How many stones were thrown at Jesus? And and that's the deal. This is something that's inescapable. This is something that we have to come to terms with and understand how we're going to deal with it, and we have to deal with it graciously.
0: All right, BJ, we have reached that moment in the conversation, and i got to tell you, on the program, listening to it, this is one of my favorite sections, but when we get there, it's a section that I hate because— <laughs> It means a good conversation is coming to an end, but don't worry. I've already decided I'm having you on a panel about God-glorifying ridges. and we're. I may do that in two to three weeks, depending on what your schedule is, but I want to get Kenny Embry in there and oh, one I'd other person, maybe maybe Brian Haynes. And Remember, this is where we put our spiritual AR-15s on three-round burst, and we try to give quick answers to tough questions. Names are changed to protect the innocent and, in some cases, foolish. But here we go. (laughs) What kinds of strategies work for you on a daily basis to deal with your struggles of faith that are maybe some of those addictions we talked about? You mentioned Covenant Mm -hmm. Eyes a moment ago.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, Covenant Eyes is a deterrent. It It is not a solution. You know, obviously we go back to changing the heart. But what strategies work to deal with daily struggles of faith? Just right off the top of my head, three things that come to mind. One, setting your mind above. Looking for spiritual things in everyday ordinary events that I'm constantly thinking about a biblical lesson that I can learn. Because now I'm directing myself to allow myself to think about godly things and allow that to be what consumes my mind. Not normal day things that are futile or irrelevant. So that in prayer. If you're not talking to God, you're not doing it right. Talk to God and yes, pray pray always. Pray without ceasing. And and that that needs to be how you start your day. It needs to be what's going on through your day. It needs to be how you end your day. Talk to God. Absolutely. You
0: know, that's one of the questions that I ask people when they come to me and they talk about some kind of insurmountable struggle. And and Chris Emerson gave me a third one the other day. It's tell me what you believe about Jesus, which I absolutely love. Mm. But I asked him Mm. two questions. What are you reading? Which incidentally, we talked about earlier in this podcast. And what are you praying about? Because I've often found that when people are unable to deal with their struggles, the first two things that go out the window are prayer and Bible reading. Yeah. Because the indictment... Of those two acts. And the first two things that you do to recover and get on the road to repentance are prayer and Bible reading. Yeah. And they will help you find the strength to do the thing that you're needing to do. So I appreciated that you talked about starting your day with that and and really engaging in prayer and and thinking about the things that are above. It seems like I've heard of a podcast.
1: Yeah, something like that. Tune into my podcast. That's that's what you should do. That's right.
0: Hey, plug away. Plug away, buddy. I plug my own <laughs> program on here all the time. It's like, hey, over on Biblically Speaking. Yeah, that's right. That's right.
1: <laughs> you know, I will say this. Hey, I'll encourage people. When I say start your morning, try this. I did this for a while, and I loved it, and I want to pick it back up. And journaling is something that you could do. But yes. in First Thessalonians 5, he says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. For this is God's will in Christ Jesus for you. And do this. Do three things— that you can rejoice in today, things that bring you joy, write those down. Three things Mm -hmm. that you need to pray about, or people that you need to pray for, and then three things that you need to thank God for. You do that every morning and start your day off. Three things to take joy in, three things to pray for, and three things to thank God for, and that will change your mindset of the day.
0: So a couple comes to you with their son. And they say they've caught him looking at pornography. What conversations will you have with the parents, with the child, and what can they do to help him? Rapid
1: fire. I would say to the parents, be graceful, be serious, be very stern, but show grace and remind them that you love them and that you're there to support them through this process. I would encourage the parents to not be the only ones that dialogue with their children because sometimes children need another voice. They learn it better from someone yeah. else to involve them with some spiritual mentors or to connect them with someone that would be willing to help. You know, call me, you know, have, have them call me and work with right. me. And, and, you know, someone that's trustworthy that they would, you know, be able to sit and talk with. To the child, I would say you need to be vulnerable and you need to be honest. If you're not going to be honest, we can't help you. You have to be 100% honest and not water down anything that you've done or are currently doing. It needs to be completely full exposure. Light exposes darkness. And unless we expose darkness, it cannot be overcome by the light. And so you, you have to have complete honesty. And you need to know that you're going to be asked to do some tough things. You have to be willing to do the hard things, but that it's going to be worth it. If you want freedom, if you want... to to be in control again of your life and experience things you never thought possible and and, and blessings and and fulfillment and contentment you never thought possible, to be able to lay your head down at night and know that you're at peace with God and not this double-mindedness that you've been living, then you've got to get on board with this and take it seriously.
0: Would your answer change if it were a daughter?
1: No, it would be the same thing, but I would say that motivation is often different for why one is doing that. And for a daughter, I would say a lot of that is probably tied to their sense of worth.
0: You really need to know what's going on in the lives of your children. That's why something, not just covenant eyes, but bark is another one Mm. that will tell you what they're doing and what they're looking at. But, but very often the exposure of girls to pornography is not the consuming of it initially, but the creating of it. And that is something that's going to follow them for a long time. And it is something that if a young man admits that he's struggling with looking at porn, the brethren are going to forget about it in a few weeks. You know, when a young girl is exposed in that way, it may be that she carries that with her for
1: years. Yeah, yeah you're exactly right.
0: And she needs to know that her worth has not diminished in your eyes. And and in the eyes of, and I got this from Kenny Embry that that you know people that line up to blame you are not in your corner. The people who will come to you and say, Yeah, what you did was stupid, but I'm here to cry with you and help you and and I don't love you any less. Yeah, those are the people that are in your corner. And you need to figure out who those are very quickly because this is this is one of those places where we can feel holier than thou
1: mm-hmm. and
0: and we can we can pile on on the very public sin. And what you end up doing is making it impossible for that person to ever find repentance because they don't feel like they have any worth in themselves or with God.
1: Right, right. So this is what I tell people. Listen, what gives you worth and value? It's not your material— it's not your color. It's not what your, your shape or what you're made out of. It's yes. the name that you bear. You are a daughter or a son of God. You are made in the image of God. That is what gives you such great worth and value. And so stop trying to find worth and value in your shape or your color or your size or, you know, your identity and these kinds of things. That's not where it's found. It is only found in Jesus. That's where your value is found.
0: So, a man comes to you and admits that he's struggling with pornography. His wife has found out. She is angry with him. And he's mad at her for, in his words, overreacting. He tells you, BJ, it's just pictures. What will you say to him to help him see where he's
1: at? I'd say you're stupid. <laughs> that's, that's the word I'm going to use. Because that's the word that God uses in Proverbs 5. And, and Proverbs 5 deals with the man who's who's gone to an adulteress and has forsaken the covenant with his wife of his youth. And he says at the end of Proverbs 5 that the the, the cords of his own sin entangle him, and because of his great stupidity, he's led astray. and And that's what I would tell him is, listen, you you forsook your covenant with your wife. You have no understanding of what you've just done to your wife. And this is what guys don't understand. There is a a ton of research that has been done on the other end of what wives experience when their husbands are addicted to pornography and it models trauma, the the behavior, Mm -hmm. the psychological response, the emotional response models what women go through who have experienced trauma. And yeah. you brought this on yourself. She she is angry with right and with reason. You have what you have told her through your actions is that she's no longer good enough. That now she has to right. compete with every other woman that might catch your eye, and you know that that's the 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 rule the the measurement that you're going to now use is is that she has to live up to this unrealistic portrayal of what a woman should do and be. And it's just right. wrong. I mean, she she needs to be angry. And she's going to deal with a lot of things in that process. And what you need to do is have complete humility and yeah. be ready to do anything that it takes to to try to rebuild trust in your marriage. And so overreacting, no, you, you are not reacting enough to what you've done. You are watering down your sin and gaslighting your wife, making her feel like she's the one who's in the wrong and guilty to try to mm-hmm. build up your ego and cover your sin. Like, how dare you? No, you're stupid. And and you need well, you to, see that. to realize what you've done.
0: Yeah. You see that a lot of times when affairs have come out in marriages, that the person who's having the affair, they might stop the behavior, but they don't really repent. They, they don't really acknowledge that they acknowledge that they were caught. They're sorry for that, but they don't really acknowledge the harm that they've done. And one of the in one of the things that you will see sometimes in husbands and wives is they they will start spinning in the direction of what they were told led to the affair. You know, the word that you use there, I think, is absolutely perfect, and it's a biblical word: the stupidity, the selfishness. Mm-hmm and willing to acknowledge that it's not really what the other person was doing it's what
1: you struggled yes. with yes and, and and then you it's not going to get any better and here's the deal your response is your responsibility you know That's right. there are always factors that can contribute to an environment of hostility but that does not force you to sin okay right. You know, I'll give you a, a for instance. I talk to guys about this all the time. You know, a lot of times when pornography will resurface is when intimacy in a sexual, physical sense, not intimacy in marriage, but in a physical sense, diminishes their wife gets pregnant and she's sick all the time and so they have to go a period of of several months without sexual intercourse or you know, she gives birth and there's that 6 week period of time without sexual intercourse or she's exhausted she's watching kids all day you come home and she's touched out when she's intimacy physically isn't as frequent as it was when you were both 18 <laughs> and newly married and and they have this expectation that well they misinterpret first corinthians 7 well you don't have authority over your own body and and she's denying me of my needs no you're not considering her needs you're considering this from a selfish perspective and, and and you're seriously thinking that this was going to be the same throughout your marriage and that there wasn't going to be changes like you need to consider the changes that are happening in your wife and in your marriage and to be intimate you need to support her and and Help her in these moments in that process. But what happens is a lot of guys think of this as though like it's not something that they can control. Like this is why God gave me a wife, and I have these needs, and if she doesn't meet my needs, and I'm called to sacrifice, then I'm going to go get it elsewhere. No, how? No, no. You need to learn self control, and and yes. you need to learn how to control your own vessel. And 1 Corinthians 7 is not teaching selfishness in marriage, it's teaching selflessness in marriage. It's saying that I consider the needs of my spouse, not that they need to consider mine. It's the opposite. Why is it that we realize that everything is motivated by selflessness in our walk with Christ except for the relationship of sex and marriage? Why do so many Christians feel like that's a place where I'm allowed to be selfish? That's not what the Bible's teaching. That's not what marriage is about. Many young people
0: are lured into sexual sin that adversely affects future relationships, whether it's premarital sex or pornography or, or something else. What do you tell young people starting out in marriage who have this problem, and what roles should churches
1: play in the conversation? I mean, what would I tell young couples that are dealing with this? You know, get help. Don't, yeah. don't deal with this on your own. And, and be honest with each other. Be open. And be willing to make some serious changes. You know, the, the yeah. definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And right. our approach to this often is insane. You know, we don't change our habits. We don't change what we're doing. We don't change our practices. And then we wonder where we went wrong. You know, couples that are right. dealing with this, they, they need to think about what they're putting into their minds and what they're intaking. They need to think about their relationship towards each other. They need to think about their covenant. And so that's where I would start. And role of churches in this conversation, here's the deal. This cannot be a taboo subject. We need to talk yep. about pornography from the pulpit. We need to talk about sexual good and bad. Not just warnings, but we need to talk about the godly point and perspective of sex and sexuality and these types of things mm-hmm. in a public fashion and in the classrooms. We need to have these discussions, and I will say this, the church is not the first place these discussions need to be had. Where What we yeah. teach our children in the churches is to supplement what is supposed to be happening in the home. The first priority in the first line of defense and, and equipping happens in the home with the parents. That's the biblical model. And that is mm-hmm. supplemented through what we do together as a church.
0: Yeah. And one of the things that I would add to that is, when you're talking about things that happened in the past with your spouse, be gracious in how you talk about them, and be gracious in how you receive them. Mm-hmm. They don't need all the gory details. No, be- but they do need to know. Yeah, they do need to know what's lurking, and at the same time we need to be very forgiving. If you're not going to acknowledge that some things are in the past and people can't change what's in their past, then ask them those questions before they get married, If that's before yeah. you get married, if that's that important to you. Yeah, yeah. Don't enter the covenant and then put a stumbling block in front of them by saying, well, I just, I, and I've seen this happen. I don't know if I can trust you. You've got, you know, you got too much baggage. No. Everybody comes. You're in an intimate covenant at that point. Everybody comes with baggage.
1: And it's our job to help them unpack. I think I just stole your line there. (laughs) Yeah. Everyone comes with baggage. It's our job to help them unpack.
0: Yeah. And to allow them to feel safe in unpacking it. Mm -hmm. And that goes into kind of the part B of that question that, I mean, how do you advise men and women when they speak about their desire or their struggle to have desire in this area? I think a lot of women struggle to be okay with the fact that they have sexual desires.
1: By teaching that it's a godly, biblical principle, this is not something that's taboo, that's sinful. It's learning to control our desires and, and, and to use them in a way that glorifies God. Sexual desire is not sinful. What is sinful is when we allow that desire to be lingered upon and, and you know acted upon in, a, in a, a way that destroys God's covenant of marriage. and and dishonors God's covenant of marriage. But desire in and of itself is not wrong. And and nor is temptation sinful. We need to learn how to deal with temptation. But the idea that temptation in and of itself is sinful is just wrong. Jesus was tempted in all things and yet did not sin. And I think temptation helps us to be aware of our desires. And some of them are not sinful, but some of them are. And we need to learn how to measure that and control that. My dad always said this regarding temptation. You cannot keep a bird from flying through your tree, but you can keep it from nesting there. Right. And the same with a thought that enters into our mind. You can't keep temptation from you, but you can prevent yourself from dwelling upon it and acting upon it.
0: Right. So, final question. What can we do to make room for our brethren to confess these type of things?
1: Oh, man. I recently spoke with Adam Shanks on his podcast, which I would highly recommend you go and listen to, called Preach Impediments, not Speech Impediments, Preach Impediments. Great podcast. And in, in our discussion, we talked about going forward and where that originates. And we talked about confession a lot. And then mm-hmm. I, I believe Tommy Peeler did a whole uh, a section on confession. And when we talk about confession and making room for our brothers to confess these types of things, we need to throw tradition out of the, the out with the bathwater, okay? And, and the, the tradition has become, don't talk about anything. That's, that's the tradition. We, we neglect to do what Scripture has called us to do, which is to confess our sins to one another. Again, we would rather uh, keep up with the appearance of righteousness than actually be righteous and do what God has called us to do. And that first step needs to be me where I follow through with the biblical model, where I'm willing to confess my sins to others and be honest and open with others and seek help. And then we're so afraid of being judged or, you know, whatever. And here's the deal. Sin comes with shame. Get over it. You're going to have to deal with some when you confess your sins. That's part of your humiliation. That's part of your be wretched and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Yeah, you're going to have to deal with some of that. But at the same time, you don't, Recognize the healing that comes with confession, too. David wrote about in the Psalms about when I kept my sin and I hid my iniquity, that your hand was heavy on me and the guilt of his Mm -hmm. sin, you know, weighed down on him. But it's when he confessed his sin and acknowledged his iniquities that suddenly he found freedom. There is freedom and healing confession. I believe that's exactly what James is talking about in James chapter 5. I don't believe he's talking about physical healing. I believe he's talking about spiritual healing and spiritual confession. And we need to create opportunities where other than coming forward and being stared down by everybody as you're walking down the middle of the aisle, we need to create opportunities where we have discussions about things that we're dealing with. And that's why I encourage churches to, to get into small groups and men and women to get into small groups and have conversations about this where they say, you know, how can we help you? Like, what what's going on in your life? You know, how can we encourage you this week? And that that highlights one thing
0: that I really think we need to be aware of, and that is confession is not something that happens in five minutes in the last verse, or two minutes in the last verse of an invitation song. That's right. That can, that's where the problem is brought out into the open. But confession is going to be a lot of conversations where the person that's confessing needs us to be gracious, to listen, to, in some cases, they may tell us things about ourselves, if it's parents to children, that we need to know that we're contributing factors. And we, we sort of bristle at that idea. Well, you know, it's not my fault. You Well, mm. it might not be your fault, but you might have been a point of stress. Right, And we need to be particularly when it comes to these matters between husbands and wives, we need to be able to hear things about ourselves that might not make us comfortable, but will help us both to heal. Yeah. And confession is not two minutes at the end of an invitation. Confession is a lot of conversations and a lot of study and a lot of accountability to help and not judge after the fact.
1: I think this is what John is talking about in First John. I take a different approach to First John than, than most people have traditionally done. And I've never met someone that actually believes what John says in First John, if you take it literally, where he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Like, I've never met a person who thinks I've never sinned. Like, I've never met a Christian who thinks that way or who thinks I don't sin. Right. Or, you know, I have no problems with sin. But they live like it. And they act like it, mm-hmm. like when you talk about, well, do you have anything? To, oh no, I don't. You know, I have. I struggle with sin. Well, what do you struggle with? Oh, I don't really have anything to confess. I think John is talking about two different paradigms. That you have a kind yeah. of person that lives in a way that's as though they never struggle with sin. They never confess sin. They they never talk about sin. The the way the 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 attitude that they give off is that you know they've kind of got everything figured out and put together. Versus the other individual is one. Who lives a a lifestyle of confession where they, they don't live that way, where they can they do confess their sins. And this is such an individual who will find grace and mercy when they come to Jesus because they're coming in humility, where the other person builds themselves up in pride and God opposes the proud. Right. Now, I think that's really what John well, and, is getting and that's, at there. That's the difference,
0: because you see these emphatic statements in John that the 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 one that's born of God does not sin. You think, whoa. It's definitely not me. Well, if you recognize that, then you need to be coming in confession and repentance. Not necess- And that doesn't mean coming forward at the end of every no. uh, invitation, but you need to be getting help right. from God, from Jesus, from from your brethren right. on these things because you want to do away with sin.
1: And, and why this is important is misunderstanding this has created teeter-totter salvation theology amongst many Christians. Where they think, oh, yeah. you know, I'm I'm lost. If I sin, I'm lost until I physically confess this, like a rosary, you know, with a with a with a Catholicism, right. and until I physically confess something, if I die before I can physically confess something, then I'm going straight to hell. That's not what John is teaching here. John is teaching a paradigm of two different individuals. One that lives a right. life where they understand their sin and their need for confession, their need for grace, and another individual who lives their life in a way that they don't behave that way. They, they, they right. hide everything and keep everything under wraps.
0: Well, brother, it's been three hours and we barely scratched
1: the surface. <laughs> Man. I have enjoyed this I conversation. Could, I dude. could do this all day. I think we almost did. <laughs> yeah, I think we almost did. I've got a
0: lot of episodes I want to bring you back for, particularly that the, the next one is going to be that forum on marriage that I want to do with you. And I'm going to talk to Kenny Embry about it this afternoon and, and try to get a couple other guys, maybe Brian Haynes in on it. Yeah.
1: Well, I would be but honored to some other th- honored to do that with you. Yeah.
0: But I would also love to talk about uh, taking this idea of radical repentance and applying it to grace and faith and really sort of nailing the idea of what does the Bible actually teach about forgiveness of sins and yeah. and helping us become more bold in the way that we discuss those things. But those are conversations for off air. You've got a Bible study to get to. I
1: do. I do. I got to I got to make sure that we're still on and hopefully we're we're on for today, but I appreciate And I've got another
0: recording to get to in like 15 minutes
1: (laughs) oh who are you sitting down with edwin crozier so Hey, hey, hey he and i are always back to back on different people's things like we were just part of um uh oh my goodness what's the podcast hang on it's dan dan barker and we're
0: gonna we're gonna be like the podcast network. We are. If you want to come to find yeah. good podcasts, <laughs> and I tell you, I tell you who's even better at this than I am, or, or not really, I am, but my guests are. My guests are always recommending other podcasts, and I love it. It's Kenny Embry. Oh yeah, he literally lists them out at the end of. He's amazing. <laughs> of His episode balancing a Christian life. I'm like, man. It's like he's he's plugged man up so many times. I'm like, dude, I need to send you a check.
1: <laughs> yeah, you need to. Yeah, yeah. Even though I don't make anything on this. Yeah, <laughs> leading leading others others to Christ is what it is with Dan Barker. Edwin was on yes. the episode before me, and then just a few weeks ago, Edwin was on the episode of uh, Balancing the Christian Life right before I was, and I'm like, Edwin and I just like we go together. If I'm doing an episode, well, I I'll, know I'll pretty soon fr- I'll put you in front of Edwin.
0: Okay, so, <laughs> so <laughs> well tell you him get the top spot in the marquee.
1: Yeah, tell him I said hello and I appreciate him. I very will much. do that. And hey, Jared, man, I am so glad that we finally connected. Thank you so much for doing this with me today. And I'm looking forward oh, to yeah. lots more opportunities for us to sit down and talk shop together.
0: Absolutely. I'm, I'm looking forward, forward to it too, buddy. And I appreciate you being here. I appreciate your vulnerability. And I appreciate the fact that you're out there doing the work that you're doing. But the time for our discussion has come to we're an done. end. That's right, we're done. So for all of you out there who joined in, what is going to definitely be a two part episode <laughs> from from not only BJ but all of my guests and and from me your host everybody here at man up I want to say have a good day god bless and man up
1: Dismissed!